Continuing tonight in Revelation chapter 11 with our recap, the reality is, is before we rise, we must perish. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told... Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Guys, there is no easy way to do Revelation chapter 11. It is technical. It is complex. Man, it reaches back and touches more minor prophets than any other chapter in the entire book. And so tonight, as we continue in this kind of overarching recap of the book, we're not going to go back to the detail that we did the first time around but instead focus on what I believe is the point. What we see here continues this parenthetical section, this spot that tells us the other side of the story, not what's going on necessarily with the Antichrist, but what's going on with the people of God in the midst of His oppression and torment. It began back in chapter 10, verse 1, what we see here is part of the quote out of 10.11 prophecy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And so here you have John. A guy who has lived to see the destruction of the temple. Herod's temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its eastern facade was 24 karat gold hammered plate. In the morning sun, it would have been a sight to see. The Romans burned the thing to the ground. Gold melts almost at as low of a temperature as lead. And it ran down between the cracks and the limestone. And what Christ said was fulfilled. The Romans wanted their money. They ripped that thing apart stone for stone. Casting them down off the retaining walls, there are still dents in the pavement to this day where those blocks hit the ground. Also, they could peel what was left of the glory of that temple out between those rocks. John lived to see it. And yet, here he is, caught up in this heavenly vision, being given a rod and told to go and measure something that in his time no longer existed. The command to measure within Scripture can mean several different things. It can sometimes mean to measure off unto destruction. 
like you see in 2 Kings chapter 21, where the Lord says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. It can sometimes mean being measured off to preservation, like we see in Ezekiel chapter 40 or Zechariah chapter 2. But always, always, whether it's to preservation or destruction, it is always measured to understanding. The concept in the Hebrew is literally to size something up. Put the line on it. Mark it out. See how big it is. In Ezekiel chapter 40, the man, being an angel, said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. Which, once again, I mean... You know, if you rewind from John's perspective, at the time this was written, there was not a wall outside the temple area. There would be. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. Length and so he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, the height, one reed, the content of the measurement is the temple, the altar, and those who worship. He is specifically told not to measure the outer court because it is given over to those who are lawless in order that they may trample on it. What we see here is much like what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 9. In the midst of judgment, there is preservation. In the midst of, hey Pharaoh, I lifted you up specifically to show my power in you. So too, in doing that, have I used that lifting up to preserve the people to whom I show compassion. There's preservation in view for those who draw near to the place of God's worship and destruction in view for those that don't. Now, if you want to talk about possible interpretations, the list is long. You could talk about the historical, literal interpretation, but the fact is it just doesn't work. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and its destruction was not partial. It was absolute. There was not one stone left upon another as Christ said there would not be by the time that John writes this that thing's already gone. You could look to a future literal interpretation. Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 2 describes the events of the future seas of Jerusalem in which part of the temple complex will be desecrated and part will be preserved but the problem is is that scripture specifically states that the entirety of the temple will be desecrated by the antichrist and when he comes he comes in the 
fullness. Like, guys, we talk about total depravity a lot. There is a difference between total depravity and absolute depravity. Total depravity means that in some way, everything about the human being, their desires, their flesh, their mind, their thoughts, to some degree has been tainted by sin. It doesn't mean they're as bad as they can be. Absolute depravity will not be realized until the man of lawlessness comes. And he will be as bad as you can possibly be. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the degree in is poured out on the desolator. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand and run. The reality is, is what's being talked about here is a spiritual future reality. Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 2 describe the manner in which the Lord will preserve a portion of the Jewish people to Himself during this time of greatest apostasy. Many will fall. Luke chapter 21 verse 24 They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled and yet a remnant will remain. Chosen. Called out. The elect. Those that know their God. Those that love their God. They will be set apart. They're spoken of in Daniel chapter 11. They're spoken of in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 6, where Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah? We're going to get to him in a minute. How he appears, appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I mean, look guys, this dude's like not just a prophet. He's like top ten, right? And God just answers him and says, man, you're just wrong. What's God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's developing the exact same idea that he presented in chapter 9. It depends not, therefore on human will or exertion, but on God who shows grace. 
And he has maintained for himself in the midst of the greatest rebellion that has ever occurred a portion of the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the very evidence of their preservation is the fact that there are those that among them that will bear witness. And that's where we get down to the brass tacks. In Revelation chapter 11, let's look at verse 3 all the way through 14. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's some rough stuff to wear for three and a half years. <laughs> These are the two olive trees. Now, guys, it gets heavy. There's just no way around it. I mean, there's stuff here that we don't understand and we won't understand until we see it. We may not understand it when we see it. It may be after it's all said and done that we really get it. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Those statements cover every prophet from Moses to Elisha. When they have finished their testimony, because this is what it's all about, when they've finished their testimony. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. They will lie in the streets of Jerusalem. The Lord is completely comfortable with this. If he was comfortable with allowing his son to suffer on the behalf of his people, he is comfortable in allowing his people to suffer for the testimony of his son. For three and a half days... Some of the peoples and tribes and language and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents like it's Christmas or something, if I can ad lib. <clears throat> because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to, the he they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake 
and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Guys, i got to tell you, the church today, all too often, I pray we're not guilty of this, all too often wants salvation without wrath. Friends, the reality is, if there's no wrath, there's nothing to be saved from. The two go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. The thing that we have to worry about as human beings, not not as Christians, but as human beings, the thing we have to worry about is not sin in and of itself. It's what a holy God is going to do about sin. If we are not justified by the blood of His Son. And these two are preachers of the highest caliber. The Greek uses the definite article. They are the two witnesses. Not just two witnesses, but the two witnesses. They are the ones that stand before the Lord. They're prophesied in Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4. Like I said, man, this is thick stuff. But all I know to do is read it to you. I don't understand all of it. I don't think we will until we see them. And I think a lot of guys stretch themselves trying to explain stuff that they really don't have any grounds for being able to explain. But here's what the Word of God says. In Zechariah chapter 3, we're just going to read all of it. He showed me Joshua the high priest. And you've got a situation here that is very similar, very similar to John the Baptist. He is Elisha that is to come if you will accept it, but Elisha still comes. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Because as powerful as Satan is, folks, the highest order of creation, the highest order, as powerful as he is, doesn't have an original idea in his head. That's the nature of wanting to replace something that already exists. So when what you want to do is dethrone God and become God, you don't have a lot of original thoughts. And so the same thing that he's doing with Job is the same thing he was doing with Adam. Is the same thing that he's doing with Joshua and 
Jeroboam, if I can spit it out, is the same thing he will do with these two witnesses in the day of the fullness of his power. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Man, I'll have mercy on him. I'll have mercy. Even if you don't like it. O guardian cherub. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What a statement. Probably make a pretty good tattoo. Brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Guys, the imagery here is just profound. You want to be humble? You're going to have to be humiliated. And what God's going to do is strip him bare. Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with pure vestments. Man, you can compare and contrast this to Isaiah chapter 6. Same deal, man. You, you talk about faith. The Lord says, Here's the deal, man. I'm going to make you pure, but the way I'm going to do it is strip you bare. Isaiah chapter 6. Hey man, I'm going to fix you. You're a man undone. The way I'm going to do it is take a coal off of this furnace and shove it in your mouth. (laughs) Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. God always comes through. You have to have the faith to walk the difficult stuff to see it happen. When my people's strength is spent, he said, then, I will answer. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. I will give you, I will give you the right of access among all who are standing here. You talk about a profound statement. I will let you come before me at will. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Okay, we just moved from present context 
to future reality. It's not just going to stay you. There's one coming. I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes. And this is Revelation 5. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can break the seals? A lamb standing as though it was slain with seven eyes and seven horns the one that is spoken of by Daniel, a stone that was cut and became so great that it filled the entire cosmos. For behold, on this stone I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. There are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, I don't, my Lord. I'm not sure I do either. And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. He shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Man, guys, Zechariah, Daniel, and Joshua... I mean, sorry, Zechariah, Daniel, and, and John, they're all seeing exactly the same thing. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. And then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. 
man, here you see the gospel applied to two men centuries before Christ hung on the cross. The branch comes. Your filthy garments are removed. And you are made clean. As lampstands and olive trees, the light of truth flows through them by the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the whole world, according to Zechariah chapter 4. And though Joshua and Zerubbabel were the immediate fulfillment of this spiritual reality, they were not the fullness thereof. I would have you know that while these men are specifically identified in Zechariah 3 and 4, for instance in chapter 4 verse 11, but when we get to chapter 4 verse 11, the prophet is still unable to identify the personhood of the olive trees themselves. It is just like John the Baptist as the Elijah that is to come if you will accept it, but Elijah still comes in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 17. Man, these two witnesses, they stand before the Lord of the whole earth. They're clothed in sackcloth, the attire of prophets. They have fire from their mouths that doom those who would harm them and they have discretionary power to cause drought, turn water to blood, bring every type of plague that we've ever seen any prophet bring and their witness lasts for exactly 1260 days or according to a Jewish calendar three and a half years. Now, there's been a lot of work that's been done to identify who these two guys are. But at the end of the day, it's pretty straightforward. A lot of people say, Elijah, they would be exactly right. Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elisha the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children in the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Once again, man, you've got to go back to Romans chapter 9. If He had not done this for us, if He had not shown compassion to whom He would show compassion and mercy to whom He would show mercy, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Lest I do this, I will send you Elisha. Matthew chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus said, Elisha does come and He will restore all things. The second option of popular opinion is Moses. It's not Moses. Hebrews chapter 9 says that it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Moses is most definitely dead. Elijah wasn't. He was snatched up to be taken to God. And guys, once again, like I said, man, Revelation chapter 11 gets into some heavy stuff. I don't know how this works. I don't know how a man in the flesh can be before the presence of a holy God. But Elisha's been hanging out for like 3,000 years. But he doesn't have nothing on the other guy which is Enoch. Like Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11, Enoch does not die, but he is 
taken up to be with God in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Thing is, is it's appointed once for a man to die. And these guys haven't died yet, but they're going to. They're going to die in the streets of Jerusalem. And they're going to die because of their witness. And they're not going to die because they've been overcome. And these guys are breathing literal fire out of their mouth, turning water to blood. They die because the appointed time comes. The witness has been made. And the content of that witness is nothing less than the gospel itself. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, Behold, I will send you Elisha the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I strike them and the land with a decree of utter destruction. And this is gospel preaching. This is life and death. This is, behold, we are the aroma of Christ to everyone. For some, the fragrance of life unto life. For some, the fragrance of death unto death. In life, they're untouchable until their ministry is finished. In death, at the hands of the beast of the bottomless pit, Satan himself, according to Revelation 11, verse 7, they are hated by the world to the point that people celebrate it with gifts given to each other at their death. They won't even pick them up off the street for three and a half days. Such is the manner that they despise the content of their witness. their resurrection, the breath of life returns to them causing the greatest of fear in their adversaries they are called to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watch on followed by an earthquake that levels one tenth of Jerusalem kills seven thousand people and compels people to give glory to God literally according to verse 13 out of terror This, it is said. Now I'm going to wrap it up here. I know I'm late. The purpose of their witness is that the word of the Lord comes to the whole earth. And that requires more than powerful rhetoric. That requires the very Spirit of God Himself. We are called to hasten this day. In 2 Peter 
chapter 3. We're just going to cut right to it because I'm out of time. 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 10 through 13. Peter writes and says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Man, these guys are literally hastening the day of His coming. And they've been waiting for a long time to do it. And here they are in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel of the branch. A gospel for which they are hated, attacked, and eventually destroyed. And we have been called to hasten this very day. And so how do you hasten the day of God's coming? How do you hasten a day that is a fixed point in time that is set by God Himself? A point in time that's not going to occur one moment before or one moment late. In Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 11 through 14, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is a point in time that God has set when the enemies of Christ will be made a footstool for his feet. And if God has set it, then how in the world do you hasten it? One way or the other. It must be by fire. Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, speaking of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that comes at the beginning of Acts, when tongues of flaming fire descended upon them, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The manner in which we hasten the day of the Lord's coming is the same manner that these witnesses are operating in, and that is 
proclaiming the gospel of the branch to a lawless and fallen world, knowing full well that there are many in that world who will reject it out of hand, and knowing full well that God is faithful to call His people to Himself in faith when they hear the testimony of witness. That's what we do. Even if it gets you killed and left to rot in the street for three and a half days. Praise the Lord, He has not yet put us in that position. And I pray that He doesn't. You know, well, if it's one thing for me and you, it's another thing for our wives and your kids. I pray that He doesn't. But if He does, we are those that hasten the day. And we hasten it exactly like these two guys hasten it. We proclaim the gospel of the branch. Knowing full well that He will be faithful. Okay, there's a bunch more in chapter 11, but we'll cut her off there. Randy, pray for us.